0: Dan Kroenke is an American businessman and a billionaire. He's also the former owner of the St. Louis Rams. And as many of us from St. Louis will know, the the St. Louis Rams were a beloved franchise of the, the St. Louis faithful. We won a couple Super Bowls and towards the end of the 20th century we were on top of the NFL world even in the early beginning parts of the 21st century we were doing well we had this national recognition for for you sports fans of you know we were called the greatest show on turf guys like Kurt Warner and Isaac Bruce and Marshall Falk and Orlando Pace and it was a special time to be a St. Louis fan and it was seems like we we got a really a a big emotional attachment to our team and then we had several losing seasons and then ultimately cultivating in something terrible when 2015 St. Louis and an NFL team ended their relationship this led many St. Louis people many sports fans in our city feeling very betrayed when the Rams left St. Louis for a different city, in an article I read uh, that entitled "Midwest Faithful Still Feel the Sting of Rams' Betrayal," one, one former player, uh, Ricky Pearl, this is what he said. He said, speaking for the St. Louis Rams fans, he said, "I I feel sick for them because they're some of the greatest fans that I got an opportunity to, to play in front of. St. Louis is a great sports town." The five years that I was there, they were as supportive of a fan base as you have in the NFL. No, no place got louder than the Dome. He's talking about the Edwards Jones Dome. When we were doing what we were doing, it was amazing, and I just feel sad. These guys have been stripped twice of an NFL franchise. I just feel awful. It's been 60 years, and there's still litigations and still... A lot of wounds and a lot of Rams fans feeling betrayed. And that that feeling of betrayal is not a good feeling when a spouse cheats or when uh, a company lets go of an employee for weird or unclear reasons out of nowhere, or when a parent wasn't there for one in their adolescent years, or when a friend said they would be there for you and they left you hanging. Usually when I come up with illustrations and stories to, to help the scripture make more sense for a sermon, it's, it's kind of hard actually. It, it might look easy, but when you do it week after week or every other week, coming up with stories and racking your brain about how, how does this passage rel- relate to everyday life or what kind of illustration would help this make more sense, it's hard, but for this sermon it was easy. A sermon on the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, because illustrations of betrayal are so common. I wish I could say that the stories of betrayal are rare, but they are not. When we say betrayal, we're not talking about, you know, slightly, a slight grievance, or getting your feelings hurt, or in a slight way, or someone cuts you off in traffic, or someone overlooked you, they didn't acknowledge you when they walked in the room, stuff like that happens to All of us on a regular basis, it's just part of having friends and part of living in a fallen world. But when we talk about this word betrayal in the uh, American Dictionary of the English Language, it, it tells us that the definition is to deliver into the hands of an enemy by fraud or violation of trust or to violate confidence. It's when your trust and confidence is in someone or an organization and they violate that trust out of nowhere. And we know the feeling of being betrayed. In this passage we learn that Jesus himself does too. In the story in which Jesus is betrayed and arrested. It's February right now in our season, but in the Bible here in John's Gospel, it's Holy Week it's chapter 18. Jesus just finished his famous farewell discourse, chapters 14 through 17, in which he's giving, Hey, this is how I want you to live. I'm about to die here later this week and rise and go back to heaven. This is this is how I want you to live. Now it's Holy Week on Friday. And, and actually, many scholars believe that this scene right here with Jesus is betrayed happens just after midnight. It's Friday. So, so here's, here's what this Friday on April 3rd in history... This, this is what happened. Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested by the authorities. He's got an informal hearing before Annas and Caiaphas. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus is condemned to die. He goes to Pilate, back to Herod, back to Pilate. He carries his cross to Golgotha with some help. He's crucified, dies... Joseph of Arimathea puts Jesus in a new tomb. All of that happened on the same day. and So this is the day, this betrayal of Judas sets in motion, as it were, the rest of the events. And so likely Jesus had a sleepless night. No sleep, it's, it's pitch black, some lighting around. And we have this betrayal that happens in the garden of Gethsemane. That's the scene that we see. After Jesus prays a long prayer in the previous chapter, we're told that he goes to this garden, and it doesn't tell us which garden, but we know from other gospel accounts it's the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 2 it says that Judas of Iscariot is the one who betrays Jesus. It says he also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus, for three years, invested into these 12 guys, showing them a good, godly example, preaching, teaching, just doing life with them. And one of the ordinary places of contact for that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this was a familiar place. So the fact that it's now midnight past midnight, it's dark, it's Friday, it's the day that Jesus is going to die. The fact that Judas betrays Jesus in a familiar place, where they would have had a lot of sweet memories makes it more painful. You can imagine a, a romantic dating couple that goes to a restaurant. They love this restaurant. They, they've uh, went out to eat there 20 times, take photos, post it on social media, tell all their friends they love this place. This is their, their spot that they go to eat all the time. And then on the 21st time, one of them breaks up with the other one. And now there's this memory of, wait, we had all these good memories in this place, now I've got this horrible memory. Jesus, being in the Garden of Gethsemane, had all these good memories, now he's about to get betrayed. You can imagine the agony of being there, for the places that we hang out, and the people that we hang out with often leave memories. And so Jesus being fully God, yes, but also fully man, in his fully human state, would have felt the sting of betrayal. It's not like, oh, he's God, so he's immune to pain. That's not the Christian story. The Christian story is Jesus is fully God, but also fully man. So he knows what it's like to have this pain. So this this pain in the Garden of Gethsemane, this betrayal, would have felt massively hurtful to him. The person that does it is Judas of Iscariot. If you're familiar with any of the gospel accounts, you've probably heard his name. He's one of the disciples. Disciple means Learner or someone who engages in instruction from someone else. He hung out with Jesus for three years. Says his name is Judas of Iscariot. This is his hometown, like St. David of Limes. This is his hometown. He's he's the infamous one who betrays Jesus. His role in the ministry was treasurer, he was the guy that oversaw the, the church finances, the company finances, the ministry finances. And he stole from the ministry, even though he was seeing all the great things Jesus was doing. He had evil intentions in his heart from the beginning. And the thing that Judas does, verse 3, is that he goes and gets a band of soldiers, it tells us. Officers, priests, and Pharisees. This massive commotion past midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, It's kind of ironic because Jesus is the one who never did anything wrong. And you get all these guys, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, could have been more, could have been less, coming to arrest him. And they, they come not empty-handed, but they come with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Uh, modern day, could have been like guns and knives. And, and these weapons were for criminals to overcome resistance, to hurt people. If you were a bystander and you were watching the scene take place your heart would likely be beating out of your chest, or you'd be very confused, like, wow, that that person right there must be a horrible criminal. What did he do wrong? And yet, Jesus himself never once sinned, but he's the one who gets betrayed and arrested by Judas, Judas of Iscariot, a friend. It's not like some random guy turns him in In another gospel account, it says that Judas gave Jesus a kiss and said, this is the one who I want to turn in. For three years, he was with Jesus. And actually, he, he did something that I'm doing right now. He was Judas actually preached. In, in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, we learn that uh, that Jesus calls the 12 together, so that's the 12 disciples, and gives them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal. So you can imagine, Judas preached, he taught, he told people about sin and confession and heaven and hell and the realities of the Old Testament. He saw miraculous signs, he healed people. He saw a lot of works. And yet, even after all of that, He wanted to betray Jesus. His his inability to trust in Jesus for salvation was not because of a lack of evidence. People who who don't believe in Jesus, who don't come to Christ, it's it's never because of a lack of scientific evidence as they might proclaim. It's because their hearts are hardened. And Jesus would have done fellowship and friendship with Judas for years and now he betrays him. As I read an article this past week, imagine if you would have come to uh, faith in Christ through Judas's ministry. Imagine if that was you who heard him preaching and teaching and you came to faith and then you see him later falling away from Jesus altogether. You might feel betrayed. It seems like every four to six months I get on the internet blogosphere podcast and hear about Someone in, in leadership in Christian ministry who disqualifies himself. Thankfully, by God's grace, most of the time it doesn't happen. But sometimes we, we get a Judas, we get a person who becomes popular, He's a really gifted preacher, and then people ask him to go preach here and there. then he's jumping on planes, international trips like a rock star. People are seeing his strengths, but not his weaknesses. And so when people see your strengths all the time and tell you you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome, but not your weaknesses, it can inflate your pride and ego, starts to write books and change a lot of lives. And suddenly there's this tremendous entitlement that comes. And this sense of self-sustaining ability through intelligence or ability. And, and there's no more private walking with God. There's no more Bible reading and a prayer. It's just, look how awesome I am. Look, look how amazing I am. And the the, uh, negative effects of this are tremendous. Uh, Some of us don't know people, maybe on that scale, maybe that influential or popular, but maybe uh, you could think of a youth group leader or a youth pastor or a parent, uncle, or someone who told you about Jesus and helped you walk with Jesus, but now they're not walking with Jesus. They apostatize, which means to leave the faith altogether. You get on their social media pages, and they're really far from God. You think, to me, wait a minute, you helped me. You helped me when I was depressed and sad and anxious. You helped me when I was going through a lot of things. You're the one that bought me my first Bible. You told me about Jesus. And now you walked away from the faith altogether? It can make you feel very confused. Confused can make you feel kind of, how do I cope with this betrayal? Or make you feel paranoid. Oh no, I hope I don't walk away too. It's normal when you experience hurt from someone who helps you with your faith to feel betrayed and confused. Those are normal feelings. For Jesus, what helped him, moving on into the next verse, what helped Jesus was knowing that God was in control even in his pain. That somehow, although we, us, as in finite human beings, don't understand why God would allow something to happen this way or that way, even though we can't make sense of it, for those who belong to Christ, somehow he can take the evil and turn it into good, even if we don't see it in this life. And, and what helped Jesus, verse 4, is then Jesus Knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, "Whom do you seek?" Knowing all that would happen to him, the knowledge, this is part of God's plan. This is going to happen. I have to do this for my people to go down the cross to purchase a people for my own possession. This is just the way. This is just the way of God. Suffering is part of the game plan here. So, the, the knowledge of knowing that God is in control, knowing that God is going to do this, helped Jesus, despite knowing that in his adolescent years and as a carpenter and as he was in ministry, that this would eventually happen. Usually, when we know something bad is coming up, like an interview or a hard conversation, we can feel very anxious and afraid and paranoid. But Jesus, sowing his faithfulness to God and his contentment in, in God to be able to stay faithful, even knowing. That this hard day is coming. So the knowledge that Jesus has helped him to know that God has a bigger plan. And you can think of Joseph in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis. When his two brothers. So we're talking family now. We're talking blood. Sold him into slavery. And he went through all these confusing seasons. Even in jail at one point. And saying hey. I'm going to help you if you can just remember to tell the guys to get me out of here, please. And the guys are like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll get you out of here. And then they forget about him. And he's still in jail, and he has this encounter with Pot- Potiphar's wife, and he he runs away, and then he's accused, and he's, he's innocent, but he's treated as guilty. He has all these confusing years. It, it starts with his own family. And towards the end of his life, towards the end of his ministry, he's able to look at his brothers and say, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So no one is discrediting the fact that human beings, because of evil, do evil things because of sin. The Bible nowhere ever makes people seem really innocent. Right, so Joseph is being honest. You meant this for evil, but thankfully God is much bigger and stronger and smarter than you, brothers. Joseph talking to his brothers that God meant it for good so God can take our pain our betrayal and use it for good use it as a testimony to help other people who have gone through what you've gone through or to strengthen your character to strengthen your faith in Christ or to help you to long more for heaven on that day where we will never feel betrayal again so this knowledge of knowing God is in control and God is good it doesn't solve everything it doesn't make us less anxious or depressed sometimes we may have that that's normal I think uh, forgiveness is necessary grieving professional counseling is tremendously helpful Drawing from this passage we see Jesus Jesus knew Jesus knew this would happen he knew that God had a bigger plan for him And ultimately no one who who does injustice to us or to who betrays us or any sort of major sin it doesn't Go unchecked by God. God sees and knows all. It says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, thus says the Lord. Romans 12, 19. And on that day, the last day, God will right every wrong, and every person will give an account to the living God, and no one gets away with anything. We have forgiveness through believing and trusting in Jesus. So if you have betrayed someone, there's an opportunity to be to be forgiven forever through the blood of Christ, through believing in Jesus. But for those who don't repent, those who don't believe in Jesus, God will express his justice upon them. So Jesus knew that this betrayal would happen, and you can see the scene, it's past midnight, it's Friday, they got all these guys here. And Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation. He's the one that takes responsibility. He's the one that speaks up. He says, who are you looking for? The guys say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. I am he. And now for we're, we're in chapter 18 of John's gospel. But those of you who have paid attention towards the little I am statements, if you haven't, it's okay. They're, they're slipped in there, but they come up enough to help us to see that the, the expression I am happens over and over again. So when Jesus says, I am he, that's not your ordinary, yep, that's me, what's up? Jesus of Nazareth, right here. How can I help you guys? He's not, he's not doing that. He's actually doing some symbolic, some symbolism here. And uh, he's referring back to Exodus chapter 3, where, the, where God told the Israelites, where God told Moses, he said, hey, uh, I, I want these Israelites to, to be out of slavery. Go tell Pharaoh to let them go. And Moses says, okay, but when you tell me this big request, like who should I say is sending me? And God says, tell them. I am is sending you I am has sent you that's a name for God so when Jesus says I am he he's saying I'm God he's revealing once again his divinity to them and so what happens to them when they hear this verse 6 when Jesus said to them I am he they drew back and fell to the ground because they realized They were there to arrest God. This is not just some ordinary Palestinian Jewish 30 something year old male. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God. So immediately they would have known what he's talking about and they all fall to the ground. When a good, morally, you know, cop or FBI agent or detective, they're looking for someone, they're looking for information, scrambling to find the right information, they find a name, an address or something, often act promptly to move forward. These guys find out their information, that name, and they're, they're more afraid than they were before they even started. They know exactly what they're doing, that Jesus is saying, I am God here, through saying, I am He Throughout the Bible, whenever God shows up or there's a divine revelation, there's tremendous fear. Like at the birth of Jesus, when an angel of the Lord shone to the shepherds out in the field. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. How much more with the eternal Son of God? So Judas knows exactly what he's doing and now this mob knows exactly what they're doing. And Jesus continues the conversation. They can't get their bearings quite together. So Jesus says, verse 8, if you seek me, let these men go. When I read that, I thought, what, what men are you talking about? And then he continues on in verse 9. He says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. I thought, okay, what Old Testament passage, what symbolism, what's going on here? Study Bibles, commentaries, help me out here. Jesus is actually not, uh, when he says, let these men go, he's talking about his 12 disciples or his 11 disciples, since Judas is a traitor now and he's on the other team. And what Jesus is saying here, it's a reference to when Jesus said back in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is like, hey, don't touch these guys. These are my guys, my 11. You want to talk to me? Come talk to me. Don't talk to them. Don't, don't hurt them. You hurt me. I'm the one who's going to give my life up for my people. So, so, so you could see the, the true leadership and initiative of Jesus protecting his 11 disciples even though they failed him over and over and over again. In fact, one other gospel account says they, they fled the scene in that moment. And so Jesus here is showing, as he talked about throughout the gospel of John, of he, he's a shepherd. He's showing what true manliness is about, what true leadership and masculinity. It's, it's not about how many degrees you have. It's not about how tall you are, how attractive you are, how much money you make. It's, it's not about how people esteem you. Those things uh, they have some value, but maybe not as much as we usually think. What Jesus is showing is true leadership, true masculinity is about taking initiative to help those under your care to flourish, to protect them. It's not about being the smartest guy or the best speaker or the uh, most degrees. God gives gifts as he sees fit. But those of us in leadership positions of some sort, we can look at Jesus here, and we see him laying his life down for people. Those under our care should feel a sense of, hey, they got my back. My husband's going to fight for me. When, there, when there's in-laws, when there's, when there's family stuff, hey, my husband's going to stand up for me. I'm going to protect my children. I'm going to protect my kids. Those who work for me in this organization I'm going to help them flourish. I'm going to lead. I'm going to take the I'm going to take the hits. If I call the shots, I'm going to take the shots. I'm going to help them flourish. If we don't do this, people under us might feel betrayed. If we do do this, we'd be helping them grow and lead and we'd be mirroring the Lord Jesus Christ who did not think about his own comfort but the blessing and flourishing of those around him. This is exactly what true leadership and Manliness looks like Jesus is exemplifying it in a perfect way. Even though Jesus takes the initiative to help his people, there's always one that wants to speak out. We know that Peter, Peter wants to speak out. And so what Peter does is, Jesus, no, you don't protect me, I'm going to protect you. You don't speak for me, I'm going to speak for you. I I don't like this guy. So what he does, he actually gets a sword... And cuts off the right ear of someone named Malchus. Uh, A couple study Bibles, a couple commentaries were saying uh, the sword that Peter had was not for, it was for stabbing, not slicing. So it was likely that he tried to kill him right then and there on the spot. But the guy moved out the way and he only got his ear. And thankfully that Jesus can heal And Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus heals the guy's ear. But Peter's being extremely zealous. He's like, no, I'm going to fight for Jesus. You guys back up. And Even though Jesus said over and over again, I have to lay down my life for the sheep, Peter, it still hadn't hit home what Jesus was talking about. So Peter felt like he needed to jump in there. And he shows tremendous zeal. But a few verses later, he denies Jesus. And Jesus has this teaching moment, this pedagogical moment. Pedagogical means teaching. He has this moment with, with Peter where he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me, Peter? That word cup is a a symbolism for death and judgment and wrath all throughout the Bible. We know Jesus prays later, and he says, Father, if it is your will, if it is possible, please remove this cup from me. He's talking about the wrath of God and the judgment and death, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus showing his humanity, like, oh, if there's another way to get out of this, uh, not my will, your will be done. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, hey, I have to, don't you know that this is part of the plan? Don't you know that I'm the second person of the Trinity, the one that the Old Testament scriptures talk about, that I have to die? So Jesus eventually helps him and heals this guy's ear, and then Jesus is arrested right there in the Garden Garden of Gethsemane. In front of his 11 disciples and then he has an informal hearing that sets in motion all the events that happens throughout the rest of this day. Ultimately when he dies on the cross in our place for our sins. I read a story on a a website called Business Insider magazine. I think they have a magazine. Went on their website and read a story about this company I was interested in. And it's a very famous, well-known, internationally recognized company that's wildly successful. But just like a lot of these startups, uh, in the beginning, there's envy and jealousy and selfish ambition, and usually somebody gets hurt somehow. And that's exactly what happened here. There's actually a book about it. But uh, when when this company first started getting started, this guy named Noah, uh, he came up with the idea for the company, the name of the company, and he worked. Really, really hard to get this thing going. And he was working with a team, and some people had more money and more power and more prestige. And Noah wasn't exactly high up on that caliber, but he was super bright and gifted. And uh, Noah was friends with this guy named Jack. And Jack and Noah were really, really good friends. And so much so that they confided in one another, just hung out all the time, just good buddies. And uh, Noah was sharing some of his dream and vision for the company. This guy, Jack, turns his back on Noah and goes to another guy named Evan and says, Hey, if you don't fire Noah, I'm leaving this company. Fire him now. So he does. Evan fires this guy named Noah. Then Noah and Jack go out for drinks later, and he tells them what happens. And Jack looks at him like, What? Can't believe that would happen even though he was the guy who got him let go. A couple weeks later, Jack became the chief executive officer. Today, Jack and Evan are billionaires. Noah is hard to find. Even though Noah had the idea, he came up with the name, he had the vision, he worked tirelessly, he confided in a friend and that friend pretended to be his pal, but ultimately got him run out and experienced betrayal. In the interview, he said this, I'm sure you get this impression from the story, and I've never really said this before, I did feel betrayed. I felt betrayed by my friends, by my company, by these people around me. I trusted that I had worked hard to create something with. How do you deal with something that painful? Life in a fallen world means that people are going to hurt other people. It doesn't always make sense. It's not always clear why it happens. But from this passage, we learn that Jesus Christ himself, he too knows what it's like to feel betrayed. And he too died for our sins. And he too is available to strengthen and help those who draw near to him in prayer and ask for help in a time of need. Let's pray. Oh Father, we fall short in so many ways. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our careers, in our friendships. Lord, I pray that we would not let envy and selfish ambition and pride get the best of us, but I pray that we would consider others more significant than ourselves. Lord, I pray that you remove all insecurity and jealousy in us for other friendships that we may have, and and help us to be godly and humble, and help us to forgive those who hurt us. I pray that we would seek proper help when needed. And I pray, God, that you would help us to remember that for those who love you, who belong to you, as you say through your word in Romans eight twenty eight, that you work all things out for good, even though we don't always understand what's going on. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.